when we were just praying before the service, uh, somebody said to me, what do we call you? And uh, I understand that Baptists may not know what to call a bishop, but uh, I'll tell you the story of the day we got the phone call to tell me 18 years ago I was to become Bishop of Down and Dromore. Uh, I went into the kitchen, and uh, this news had just been announced to the family, and my eldest son, Kevin, uh, was chatting to his friend Donal, and uh, it was in Cork, and uh, Kevin says to Donal, now, Donal, when my father comes into the kitchen from now on, you stand up and you say to him, good afternoon, my Lord. <laughs> and when I come into the kitchen, he then went on to say, Donal, you stand up and you say, good afternoon, my Lord's son. To which uh, my youngest, Niall, who was about eight at the time, said, Kevin, don't be silly. That would make you Jesus. <laughs> And uh, when I came to the diocese, I thought it was a good story to tell because there were one or two people who still hung on to this idea of calling bishops by what was an old-fashioned House of Lords title, which never applied in Ireland anyway. And uh, I thought, I want to nip that one in the bud. So I told them the story, and I said to them, look, my name's Harold. I'm the bishop. You can call me Harold or Bishop or any combination of the two, but I forgot about Harold, Bishop, and Neighbours. <laughs> Now, I've only a very brief time to expound a very long passage, and therefore, instead of reading the whole passage together and then expounding it or talking about it, I want to break it up into bits, and I'm not quite sure where I'm going to go with it. But before I begin to read it, uh, I just want to say to you that I heard recently about a Roman Catholic bishop in America, I think it was somewhere near Chicago who said these uh, very challenging words. Uh, they may become true, they may not become true, but this is what he said. He said, I believe that I will die in my bed. I believe that my successors may well die in prison. And I believe that their successors may well die in the public square. I don't know whether that's true or not. But I do know that the passage we're about to read, when I was a kid and we read these kind of passages, uh, we always thought there was a very big gap between the world of the New Testament and the world of today. And especially in Holy Ulster, where Christianity was simply the status quo, going to church was the norm, and we could have gone down our street in North Belfast and say, they're Presbyterians, they go, they're Methodists, they're Baptists, whatever it may be, right? Uh, nowadays, in that area, they're nothing. It's a highly secularized culture. Uh, it, it's almost like being in the most—this is North Belfast— being in the most secularized parts of England. And it's not that I want us to all take on board, in fact, I don't want us to take on board language of persecution because I don't think we know what persecution is, quite honestly. But uh, at the General Synod this year, someone got up and they were making a speech and they were talking about the 21 Libyans 
who were beheaded on that beach in that uh, video. And apparently, the brother of one of those Libyans who was martyred for the faith rang up, uh, or not rang up, uh, put, posted something on a, uh, the web for the people who had killed him and said, thank you for videoing the death of my brother, because I heard his very last words, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I just say that to put it into kind of some perspective, not to in any sense scare monger. Uh, I, I was at a, an event uh, some time ago where many Africans were present, and we sang a hymn that you would never sing in a Baptist church, and we wouldn't sing it in the Church of Ireland either, because it's a Catholic hymn. But it's a, it, it's a wonderful hymn. It's called Faith of Our Fathers except for one line, and it's a wonderful hymn. I agree with David. There are hymns that I don't like either, David. But, uh, but here, here's one of the verses we sang, and I found myself singing it. Our fathers chained in prisons dark were still in heart and conscience free, and blessed would be their children's fate if they, like them, should die, would be our children's fate, if they, like them, should die for Thee. Faith of our fathers, holy faith, we will be true to Thee till death. And we know that Paul, with all the hope he expresses, because it's hope for eternity, we know that Paul is on his way to his death in Rome that this is the story of how he ends up being put to death. We don't quite know how, we don't quite know by whom, but we know that he was put to death, and presumably for his faith. So I want to begin to read from Acts 25, verse 23, and uh, we'll see how far we get to. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. You saw the picture. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer." But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Well, the scene is set. I thought that was a very interesting picture because Paul seemed in the shadows, but actually was at the center with his hand out defending himself. The scene is set in such a way that many more radical commentators would say this could never have happened. It wouldn't really be possible uh, that the new provincial governor and the king and uh, the king's sister all were there, as it were, with Paul before them. Before them, yeah. 
And uh, I always like to read Tom Wright, especially in this series, Act, well, Act, The Bible for Everyone. He, he, he paints some lovely pictures, and he paints a little picture about Bernice. He says, Bernice was the sort of figure whose photograph, had she lived in our times, would seldom have been out of the glossy magazines. She was Agrippa's sister, but they traveled together and lived together, and many tongues wagged about them. Never thought of that one, did you? She had been married to their uncle, another Herod, Herod of Chalcis, and after his death had set up house with Agrippa. At one point, perhaps to silence the whispers, she married the king of Cilicia, uh, blah, blah, blah. At one point, it was rumored that she had become the mistress of Titus, an adopted son of Vespasian, the conqueror of Jerusalem, and it goes on. He says, it's as though, this is the bit, it's as though reading the story of some traveling evangelist, we were to come up with a photograph of the preacher shaking hands with Marilyn Monroe. What you have here gathered is royalty. You've got the political establishment. You have got the uh, glitterary. You've got all sorts of people from different aspects of society and life who seem to have so much power and authority and control and relevance in the society in which they live. You've got military leadership, you've got civic leadership, and as it was said earlier by Richard, you have got Paul in chains. Chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, Paul is about to share his faith. He's about to witness to his faith. And as he witnesses to his faith, he knows all about Bernice. He knows all about King Agrippa, who was uh, a couple on from the really bad Herod. And he understands that King Agrippa knows something about the Jewish faith and has a certain degree of empathy with the Jewish faith. And Paul, in his witness, and this is the first point I want to make to you, even at a time like this, Paul, in his witness, is gracious and respectful. Maybe he thinks he's going to achieve more that way, you know, but he is. He's gracious and respectful. He always calls the king, O King Agrippa, and O Most Excellent Festus, and all the rest of it. He, he kind of, uh, you know, there's a word in the Irish called plomos that my wife often uses. He plomoses him, if you know the Irish. He does a lot of plaster, if you know the English. Right? He's gracious and he's respectful. He gets Agrippa kind of on his side. Agrippa, I'm so glad that it's you. Could have been one of those awful boys, but it's you. And I'm so pleased that it's you because you know what you're talking about. You understand. 
and you have made yourself aware of what Jews actually teach and believe. Now, I think we have a lot to learn from that. Because here in Holy Ulster, our evangelism is so often over and against, isn't it? Now, I know that people evangelize with the best of hearts, but sometimes when they do it in the streets, in the city center, or whatever it is, the first feeling you have, like, I am a Christian, but I want to kind of keep away from it. Because the first feeling you have is that it's over and against, over and against, assuming the worst about you. Whereas Paul does the very opposite. Paul actually brings Agrippa into the story, assumes the rest about him, the best about him rather, and uh, tries to bring him on board so that in some way he's open to hear what Paul has to say. Secondly, he gives his credentials. Verse 4, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Paul gives his credentials. He is the true blue Jew. Right? He is more Jewish than any of them. He's of the party of the Pharisees. He even went out to persecute those who believe the very thing that he believes now. He has understood it all from inside. There is nothing he doesn't grasp. There is nothing he doesn't get, and he sees what has happened in Jesus Christ as actually the fulfillment of everything that the Jewish people were hoping for. So he lays it out in such a way that he has credibility, in such a way that, that Agrippa and the others know that he understands exactly what he's talking about, and indeed know not only that he understands it in some way from outside, as Agrippa does, but he understands it from inside. It's been part of him from day one, and he is not doing anything to undermine what Jewish people believe he is bringing to them the fulfillment of this. And after all, if God is God, why would he not be able to raise his son from the dead? And then he goes on. He's gracious and respectful. He gives his credentials, and he tells his story. I've written down, he tells his story Tweaked. Do you get it? 
because this is the third time we've had the story of Paul's conversion in the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, did God not think that once would be enough? Did Luke not think that once would be enough? Why, if you've only got so many pages in the Bible, why choose to tell Paul's story three times? Verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, here's the testimony. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's, that line is only in this version of the story. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. I find it very interesting that that testimony is given three times, or the story is given three times. And I want to ask us a question. When we give our testimony, when we witness to Jesus Christ, do we think that we can just say the same thing every time? Or do we actually realize, as Paul instinctively realizes, there's a context in which we're saying it? And the context in which we're saying it requires some things to be left out, actually, you know, to get, to get bored with it, right? It requires a certain kind of language. It requires a certain kind of angle. Now, I haven't had long enough to study the three versions to see why exactly he uh, said the different bits that he did. But... I met again Helen Rosevere at the opening of St. Elizabeth's Church on Friday night. And Helen is 89 now. Some of you will know Helen. She's 89 years of age, and her mind is not as clear as it used to be. And when I saw the Billy Graham video, I thought, oh, I would love to get Helen to give her testimony uh, again at 89 years of age. And I said to her, Helen, how are you? She said, well, my mind is not very good. I don't remember very much. And I said to her, do you remember your testimony? And she said, and I thought this was smart, which bit of it? <laughs> and then she went on to say, I remember that Jesus died for me. That's the heart of it. 
But if you were to say to someone like that, a disciple of the Lord over all these years, can you give your testimony, which bit of it is a wonderful answer, isn't it? A wonderful answer, because there there's so much that God has done in our lives. Now, I will be a Christian uh, for 50 years this July. And I was in a church in the diocese, and I was saying that, And uh, what I started to say, I will be a Christian 50 years on, and this lady at the front, they said, the 24th of July. I said, how did you know? I asked her afterwards. She said, because you were converted at a BB camp, and I was converted at a GB camp three years later on the 24th of July. And then she brought her husband over and said, tell him, tell him. Okay, he said, I was converted at a BB camp on the 24th of July, 1965, exactly the same day as you. But I began to think, goodness, am I giving my testimony too often, you know? Uh, And it really is important for us to know that there are certain ways of doing it, certain ways of telling the story, which will be a blessing a blessing to the people whom we're communicating with. Our testimony is a witness, and our witness is to people, and people are starting from all sorts of different starting points. Number four. I may have to skip out a little bit here. Paul remains rational and logical the whole way through. How often I didn't look it up to see. How often does Paul say in the Acts of the Apostles, I reasoned with you. I reasoned with you. Verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have the help, had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Right. Your much learning makes you mad. He wanted to take him off the track because Paul was going, ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. Logic, 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 rationality, rationality, rationality. That is how the argument goes. This is how the pieces fit. And uh, Festus is getting a bit tired listening to it and where it's going to. And Paul says in verse 25, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Now, we all know that the Christian faith can only be explained, as it were, within a circle in that sense, uh, that there's a kind of rational circle. But 
people have to step into it by faith. But they don't step into something that is illogical, incoherent, and irrational. They step into something that can actually be taught and explained and make absolute sense. And it is really important in churches, and I'm sure it's true in Windsor, that as you preach and teach and learn, you do things logically, rationally, making sense, so that you can argue for the Christian faith, and that you can argue for it in a coherent and meaningful kind of way. The last one is this, and I think it was uh, said earlier on by Richard. Paul is courageous and bold, and he drives the message home. He doesn't miss, as you said, and hit the wall, right? Verse 26, for the king knows about these things, and to him, he's been talking to Agrippa actually the whole time in public view, the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become as I am, and then with a twinkle of humor in his eye, except for these chains. You almost persuade me to be a Christian. A Baptist said to me recently, who should be nameless, after a Church of Ireland service, which is surprising. You almost persuade me to be an Anglican. <laughs> and I said to him, and a bit like Billy Graham. And he said, Billy Graham? I said, yes, Billy Graham apparently said that he was only sorry about one thing, and that was that he hadn't become an evangelical Anglican. And I thought, why would he ever want to do that? You almost persuade me. You almost persuade me to be a Baptist this morning. It's a very good thing. But in the end of the day, being an Anglican or a Baptist is not that important. But Paul is actually prepared to drill down, focus in, face Agrippa eyeball to eyeball, and challenge Agrippa, and put the question of decision before him. And that's critically important in evangelism too. What I have discovered in this year of mission, I carry with me everywhere I go a little pile of journeys into life. And that's a little booklet that if anybody in any congregation senses that God is putting his hand on their life, and they have not yet made a commitment to follow Jesus, and they want to kind of think about it and pray about it and work it through, well, I say this this morning, just come and ask me for one of these. On St. Patrick's Day in Down Cathedral, Justin Welby had a pile in his pocket, and I had a pile in mine, and it was a great joy to give many people these booklets to think through what God was actually calling us to, so that it isn't just ever for Paul, uh, a matter of defending himself. 
It's a matter of witnessing in such a way that those around him, and even, and especially in this case, the king, is challenged courageously to focus down and to ask the question of whether they themselves are prepared to be followers of Jesus Christ. And the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and all those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. And in so doing, he's given a free ticket to Rome, and it follows on from there. So bless you, and I pray that God would really encourage you uh, in your witness to witness in ways that are effective in this our generation, no matter how difficult that witness may be, no matter how challenging, no matter how impossible it might seem to bear witness faithfully to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.